The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, JV. Thanks for being here. We have a great show for you tonight. We're going to be talking about some very, very interesting topics. Again, things we don't always get a chance to talk about here on the show, but we will tonight. In the first part of the program, we're going to have a medical doctor, Dr. Dennis Durrell, in with us, and he'll be talking about the state of hospitals during the COVID-19 pandemic. What's going on? We've heard conflicting reports Anyway, so a lot of great stuff coming up. As always, I encourage you to join us on the YouTube channel. If you haven't found it yet, just go to YouTube and search for J.V. Johnson. The name of the channel is J.V. Johnson's Beyond Paranormal. And we have an opportunity for you there to view many, many back episodes, like 500 or so. Plus, when the show streams live, we have a chat room that is a lot of fun, a lot of great people there. And I welcome all of you to our chat room. And I say hello to everybody who's there now. Good to see you all there, of course. Also, the podcast version of the show is available on all major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and others. If you find it there, subscribe. If you get to the YouTube channel, which I would encourage you to do, please subscribe. The subscriptions help help us uh, do all the things we're trying to do here. All right, so let's go to break because we have a lot to cover tonight. So we'll go to break. We'll bring our first guest in after the break. Dr. Dennis Durrell will talk about the state of hospitals during the COVID-19 pandemic. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Dr. Dennis Durrell is a medical doctor. He also has a book. His book is called Your Healthcare Playbook Winning the Modern Game of Medicine. Dr. Durrell, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's great to have you here tonight. Hey, it's good to be here. Thank you. So, uh, because our time is short, I want to jump right into this. Give me a sense of what's happening around the country. We all know that we're in uncharted territory in a lot of ways, in, in many, many ways, um, but none of which, or the, the, the least of which is not uh, what's going on in our hospitals. What's happening in American hospitals today? Well, um, unbelievably, many of them now are half full. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, un, it's ironic that in the middle of the worst pandemic that we've seen in, in you know, almost 100 years, uh, essentially, that we would have empty hospitals. If you're in a hot spot, that's not the case. And, and you know, we're seeing that in, uh, for example, my practice, we have 19 states, 2,000 doctors. And in some of our practices in hot spots, and like outside of Chicago, uh, we're certainly seeing normal volume, not excessive volume, you know, not overwhelmed. I think New York City was the closest to becoming overwhelmed, and they weren't overwhelmed in the sense that, you know, four people were being put on a ventilator. Um, so, but other than the hot spots, we actually have empty, you know, half-full emergency rooms. Our volume is 50% of what it normally is, and people are afraid to go to the hospital. And I think that we got a little draconian with the idea of shelter-in-place, safer at home. That's true. That is true. Certainly, social distancing and isolation has helped flatten the curve. There's no doubt. 
but there's been a side effect, and the side effect is that people are afraid to come to the ER for something like a heart attack or a stroke, and in that case, time is of the essence, and we can open an artery and save heart function. And I talked to a cardiologist the other day, a patient stayed home, had heart chest pain, thought it was COVID, came in four days later, and now they won't ever have that heart function back, and they're going to have heart failure for the rest of their life. So, I, you know, my thing is we've got to be more nuanced with our messaging and realize that, you know, we're a big country. If you had a blizzard in New York and Seattle, you wouldn't shut schools in Miami. Uh, we need to treat this regionally and temper our message. I guess that was going to be my next question. Did we overreact by making most of these restrictions uh, nationwide as opposed to handling them region by region and addressing them as we saw the need? Yes, and I think elective surgeries are a classic example. You take an area of West Virginia uh, with very low incidence of COVID. You've got a rural hospital that's supporting that community. You take away elective surgeries, uh, and now that's 60% of the hospital's revenue. They might close. They're furloughing employees now. The patients don't get surgeries they need. The hospital had plenty of PPE. Uh, plenty of beds, plenty of space. You could stop the elective surgeries very quickly and not have an overwhelming number of patients in the hospital. And, yeah, I think exactly. I think it should have been more nuanced. And if you look at the reopen plan, you'll notice for elective surgeries, they're bringing them back and they're saying everything that I just said. If we have PPE, if we have a low incidence. And so I think we could have ridden through this and done some of that. So do you think this was just an abundance of caution, an overreaction, a, a giant mistake, or somewhere in the middle of all that? I, I hate to call it an overreaction, you know, because, you know, we, ha- we just don't know with a novel virus uh, what it's going to do. So I wouldn't say it's an overreaction. I think it just uh, could have been tempered. Uh, and I think that once we started to see that it wasn't spreading as fast as we thought, we should have adjusted course and we waited too long. And I do think a little bit of it was covering your, you know, covering your behind. It was like, you know, we told you not to do that. So, um, and I'm not in favor of that. I think patients are going to suffer because of that. I have a, a, a very good friend who's a senior administrator at a hospital here in Cooperstown, New York, where I live. And, uh, you know, talking about the consequence of the elimination or temporary suspension of elective surgeries, that that particular hospital is already struggling financially and already, already having a difficult time. Do you think this may result in the loss of some of our smaller and regional hospitals? There's no doubt. There is no doubt. I mean, you're looking at companies like HCA that have 180 hospitals, and their revenue is down. Their EBITDA is down 13% a quarter. I mean, they're going to be able to suffer this, this tragedy, but the rural hospitals, they're, work, they're operating too close to their margin, and most of their income really comes from these procedures and surgeries, and we're going to lose hospitals because of it. And by the way, I went to Albany Med, so we sent uh, students to Cooperstown, That's so right. uh, I'm familiar with that. Another thing, that, and this may not be uh, something that you've taken a look at specifically because it's rather new, but another thing that had me a bit concerned is some of this, these uh, restrictions that are being announced about uh, visas and work visas, because I also know that the hospital here relies heavily 
on um, what I guess we would call foreign doctors, foreign medical personnel, because they can't seem to get uh, domestic uh, doctors and domestic medical personnel here because they're in short supply. There's no doubt. Um, you know, we, we our company, so my I'm the head of our hospitals division across the U.S., and we have many foreign grads. They're, they're outstanding clinicians. Uh, and in certain areas, that's, you know, all we can get. And I, and I don't mean that in a bad way. Uh, so I'm not in favor of cutting down on very high-skilled uh, immigrants ever, not, not right now in particular. Let's talk about the reason that some patients who may normally have made a trip to the emergency room aren't doing so. You used an example of uh, somebody who, was ha- who had a heart attack, basically, didn't go to the ER until several days later. Are these people afraid of going to the ER because they're afraid of contracting COVID, or are they not going because they, they are hearing that these ERs are swamped and overrun? I think it's a combination of things. You know, when I talk to the CEOs of our hospitals that we work with, they're now trying to get out campaigns on their websites to show that there aren't guards. Uh, you know, it's not pandemonium. There aren't guards guarding, not letting people in ERs. You know, and I think that, that that's one of the problems is that if you look at the TV and you look at New York and they're showing places that are overwhelmed, there's an assumption that it's local. Uh, and I think that's part of it. The second thing is they're afraid of getting it, of course. Uh, the truth is that when you come into an ER, if you if we think you have it, you're isolated immediately. And parts of the hospital, uh, if you have it, you're going to go to a certain wing of the hospital. And, and other than really overwhelmed places, you're really not going to be in contact with it. Plus, every doctor and nurse now working in a hospital is wearing a mask all the time uh, to protect patients because, as you know, many people are asymptomatic. Uh, and I think that's part of it. And I think some of it is a guilt thing. You know, I don't want to take a bed for someone that might need it. Again, all based on areas that are overwhelmed, which really New York City has been the only one in the U.S., and I think they see that on TV, and and they think that's their local uh, scenario. So we've been helping hospitals try to get the word out that it's safe to come in. I hate to sound callous as I ask this next question, but I'm not sure how to ask it and make it sound more sensitive. But I do mean it in a very sensitive way. But are there statistics about people that have suffered, whether it's heart failure, heart heart attacks, or other conditions that would have been uh, treated at an ER that haven't gone to the ER, do are those uh, numbers st- st- statistically significant? Yes. Uh, well, we know that you know, depending on your data set, you know, one set looked at twelve major hospitals, and supposedly myocardial infarctions were down forty percent, and that's hard data. And then. Just talking to other hospitals, we hear about 50% uh, less heart attacks, and and, the, and we know that, that that can't be true. I mean, COVID didn't cure it. Right. And so we have to assume they had them, and they have, and I think we're going to find that, and we are seeing. So my doctors across the country are seeing the people that do come in, they're coming in later. Uh, it's well documented. You know, uh, on Twitter they had a, a patient that had a heart attack, and ruptured their ventricle. So there's a right and left ventricle, and the septum in between separates it. You almost never have a rupture of that in a heart attack. But if you wait too long to come in, that can happen, and they were showing the echo of that on Twitter, and I think that's what we're seeing. 
one of the things that might be a silver lining in all of this, and I'm really anxious to hear your opinion about it, but uh, there's been a move to some telemedicine. Is that a good thing that's coming out of this? And are we sparking a bit of an evolution, maybe even a revolution of telemedicine? Yes, absolutely. Um, it was amazing. You know, we telemedicine's been around for 30 years, but uh, during a pandemic, all of a sudden Medicare said, guess what? You don't have to have a HIPAA-compliant platform. That's our law to protect privacy. You can just do it on Zoom or you can do it on FaceTime. And then they eventually said you could just do it by a phone call. And, I mean, it's remarkable that in three months they moved to deregulate something that had taken years and years of pushing to do. So, absolutely, one silver lining is a lot more virtual visits, a lot more telemedicine in the future. It'll be hard to roll all of that back. People learned how to do it. They learned how to do it from home, even chronically ill patients. And I think that's been an amazing thing. We're going to see a lot more of that in the future. Putting the telemedicine component aside, I'm hearing a lot of things about uh, apps for smartphones that monitor uh, ill patients or sick patients or or COVID-19 infected people. Um, I'm hearing uh, state governments looking for ways to track and to survey some of this information. And my first thought was, how can they get away with this with the HIPAA regulations and the, and the, 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 the right we have to medical privacy? Are you concerned that some of these lines might be uh, crossed? Well, you know, I think, yes, I think if you're going to make people do things and make people share them, then I think that's a problem. If they volunteer to do it, it's different. Um, and my only caution would be, so I think that we're going to be more liberal with this HIPAA law. We always thought it was a little bit restrictive anyway. Um, so I think we're going to see some liberalization of that. But I think for most of these people are going to opt in. But if you make me do it and report, that's going to be different. Uh, and I, you know, I, I want to take a second. I, I, if you don't mind, I have an app that I developed called My Doc Replay. And we developed it, you know, two years ago. But for now, when you can't visit your loved one in the hospital or a nursing home, you can record the visit with your doctor. And then in our app, you can share it in a compliant way with your family out of state. And that's been a really big deal. And we make it free. It's free on Android and Apple. So people should take advantage if they have a loved one in the hospital to use MyDocReplay. MyDocReplay. That's the name of the app? That's it. And it's on Apple and Android. And, you know, we've, been, we've had it out there before the, the pandemic, of course, because we think if you see your doctor and your wife can't come or your, my dad has a visit down in Georgia, I can watch the video of the doctor and the doctor agrees and I can see it instantly and, and explain things to him. So it's really important to uh, capture that, to let people see it again and again. And now it's just been great because people can't visit their loved ones and sit there and talk to the doctor in the hospital. But if they use this app, they can share it with them. We've talked about visits to the ER and these, uh, well, I guess we would sudden onset type illnesses that people need immediate help for that they may be waiting. What about more chronic illnesses, things like cancer patients, uh, things that people uh, go to the hospital, whether it's for uh, maybe chemotherapy type treatments or they're actually in a hospital bed for uh, some days at a time. Has that been affected by this at all? Yes, I do think that there's been some cancer patients that have not, they've been, had their chemotherapy put on hold. I think there are patients that have COPD or lung disease that are at home that would have come in and they're kind of tinkering right on that edge, a teetering of coming in. 
uh, and and I think that there's been some delay in some diagnostic testing that should be done. And everyone says, well, that's fine. They'll eventually come in. Well, guess what? When you have 22 million people lose their jobs and then you lose your health insurance, yeah. let's not say that all these are going to actually always eventually be done because they won't. Well, wow, that's a great point, too, and I hadn't really considered that. But the fact that uh, so many people have lost their jobs, and with those jobs, their health care probably went as well. What happens with this situation? How do we get around this hurdle? This is a difficult hurdle. You know, I did read that uh, the Congress is considering extending COBRA. COBRA, as you know, if you lose your insurance, you can keep it for up to six months, but it's so prohibitively expensive if you use it. And what I have heard that in one of the phases, obviously it hasn't happened yet, but I've heard that they're going to try to make COBRA be a very minimal cost or possibly have the employer pay for that COBRA coverage. So um, more on that to come. That's something to watch out for. Let's talk about COVID-19 itself. Where does this fall in the scale of pandemics? And I don't know what would be the upper end and what would be the lower end, but give, give us a sense of how infectious this is and how dangerous it is, or, or how dangerous it isn't. I don't know where you fall on this. Yeah, I mean, first of all, if you think about the plague, the, you know, the, the plague, that was 500 million. If you talk about that means 500 million worldwide dead. That right. was a different different infection. It was a bacteria. And if you talk about the 1918 pandemic, that was, depending on who you, you agree with, 70 to 100 million. Uh, if you talk about, you know, 1968 uh, flu, uh, that was 1 million. 1957, 2 million. So that gives you an idea. And several years ago, we had a flu outbreak. So in uh, 2017, 18, where we had 80,000 deaths. And so, you know, that kind of puts it in perspective. And I I don't mean to sound callous about deaths and throwing these numbers around, but we're at 46,000. My belief is, depending on when you cut the time off, we're going to be a bad flu season. You know, we're probably going to be, by this time it's said and done at the end of this year, say December, we're probably going to be in that, you know, 80,000 range. Uh, so I, 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 you know, that's where I'd put it. Um, I think it's just very dangerous because you got to think that we have 46,000 deaths, but it's only been about four weeks. Yeah. You know, normally that 80,000 deaths for influenza, that's over a whole season, flu season. Um, so I think we're not out of the woods yet. We've got a lot more to do. Um, but you know, that, I hope that puts it in perspective for you. Do you have a sense of the, as is often referred to the denominator here? It seems as though the more we learn about this, the more we're finding that more people have been infected and just were asymptomatic, didn't recognize they had this infection. Therefore, not that any death is less significant, but, but the actual percentage of mortality is much lower. That's exactly right. You know, there was a study done in Santa Clara. I'm sure you saw that, where they said that it was probably 85 times higher the number of patients that have it than, than they thought. Right. They found about 4% of the population. And it's funny, they did the same study down in, in Los Angeles and found about the same or maybe more, um, maybe 50 times. Uh, and if you look at data out of Germany, where they just test an entire you know village, if you look at um, data from Switzerland, it's anywhere between 5 to 15 to possibly 20% percent 
have already had it or been exposed. And I think we're not talking enough about it. And the problem is that if you say that, then it really lowers the mortality rate. And, and I argue with these statisticians and epidemiologists on Twitter, they're debunking these, saying the methods were bad. And I agree they weren't done that well. That means people kind of volunteered to get this done, and that's a bias. But even without that, they, they just fear that if we say the mortality is lower because many more people had it, that everyone's going to relax. And I just don't agree with, you know, politicizing data. Let's just take the data as it, as it is. And I think we're going to find a lot of people have had this. Let's talk about treatments and a vaccine. First of all, are you hopeful that we'll actually get a vaccine out of this that'll that'll work? I mean, we, we have a flu vaccine, but the flu vaccine is not uh, completely effective. And it's a lot of guesswork from what I understand of trying to determine which strains will be active in a coming season. So what are your thoughts on the vaccine? Well, we will have a vaccine. There's no doubt. Influenza, as you just said, we we take our best guess and we put three strains in there and we hope we get it right. We don't always do it. Uh, And I think we will have a vaccine. I think we'll have one before the end of the year, although I think uh, it'll be limited availability. But certainly early next year, I think it'll be widely available. Uh, From what I've read about the genetics of this virus, it hasn't mutated so dramatically that uh, we would have problems with the vaccine not covering the virus because it's already changed. So the good news is it seems pretty stable. Um, There have been some vaccine trials done with the MERS virus that was the earlier version of this, you know, the outbreak in Saudi Arabia and Egypt. Uh, And it did show that if you give a vaccine like this, we make antibodies. So I think I think we'll have it. I think it'll it'll work. But you know the ironic thing is just like influenza. You know, I just said 80,000 people have died at, at one time from influenza and wouldn't you know that only 50% of people get a, a flu shot. So the next thing to look at is whether people are going to take this vaccine. And I know parents are not going to, I already know some of them are saying they're not going to give it to their kids. Yeah, I have to I have to ask you this question. You may not want to comment, but uh, there are a lot of people that are now saying they will not vaccinate, in some cases right. at all. Um, in, in many cases, it's we'll, we'll do the basic vaccinations, but beyond that, we're not taking any of these quote-unquote optional ones. What are your thoughts on vaccinations? Well, I mean, I'm a proponent. I did extra training in infectious disease. You know, the guru when I was training at UNC Chapel Hill was Tony Fauci. You know, I treated early AIDS patients. So, you know, I believe in vaccines, uh, but I want to know they're safe. We certainly have had vaccines that weren't safe. Uh, We had a vaccine for respiratory syncytial virus in kids that ended up causing more deaths. So I, you know, I agree that we have to be thoughtful and they have to prove be proven safe. But um, if I haven't gotten it, so if I haven't gotten uh, COVID-19 by then, I would I would take the vaccine myself. I love that answer. Uh, let's talk about COVID-19 treatments. We've heard a lot of things being circulated. Is anything effective? And, and what are most physicians doing to help people who are really suffering from this? Well, you know, my doctors across the country, and I lead a national call with our doctors on what we should be doing every week And I put out a one-page information sheet, and I haven't really had to update it now in four weeks, which is good news. Uh, And what we're finding is this. I mean, the best thing to take right now, if I had it, I would take remdesivir. 
Uh, the problem is it's very hard to get. You can only get it now through compassionate use. Hopefully, I, I've heard Gilead's making more uh, of the drug available. Um, but right now, unless you're in a clinical trial and it's hard to get in, uh, you're, you're going to have trouble getting it. But I do think that's the best. It's an antiviral. The next thing that people are getting is when you get this disease, after about a week or so, your immune system goes on hyper alert and it starts to cause what we're calling a cytokine storm. So it attacks your body, it attacks your lungs. So ironically, we're giving some immunosuppressants in the more severe cases, one of them called tocilizumab, uh, and the other steroids, of course. Now, whenever you give an immunosuppressant in an infection, you worry you're going to make it worse, but appear, it appears that we, we are calming some patients down. Uh, they're on ventilators. They're very sick, but they seem to respond dramatically to this treatment. Uh, more has to be done to see on that. And I'd just like to make a comment. Hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, I'm not a fan of that combination. The NIH guidelines just came out and said they, did, they, they don't recommend using it. It can cause arrhythmias when you use those together. I don't like the data on, on hydroxychloroquine myself. A lot of our patients are getting it, though, because they're asking for it. And doctors, my doctors, feel like they can't refuse it. Um, but I think that, you know, I recommended today on our call that no one get both of those. If you still want to get hydroxychloroquine, that's fine. Let's wait on some more data. But I don't hold a lot of hope out for that. But I haven't said don't use it to my docs yet. So if if I understand this correctly, and and, um, and I've heard this from various sources, but the real threat of this disease is how the body's immune system reacts, and it actually seems to overreact and start attacking the body itself. Is that right? That's exactly right. And in particular, in particular, the lungs. And they develop this uh, adult respiratory distress syndrome where basically all the little fluid sacs in their lungs, the alveoli, they're all, they're all filled with fluid and the inflammatory cells are there to fight it off, but they're damaging the alveoli. They're dam- damaging those little sacs. And the lungs become so tender, and it's so difficult to ventilate a patient when they get to that state. Uh, We're actually using inhaled nitric oxide to dilate arteries as a last-ditch effort to get more blood flow through the lungs and change the dynamics of the heart to get a little more oxygenation. But exactly right. The immune system is on high alert, and that's why we're using some immunosuppressants in, in these patients. The the one thing that, uh, I mean, obviously mortality is a very scary issue with this disease, but another thing we've been hearing snippets of is this idea that there could be uh, lasting damage from the disease. Have you heard anything that supports or refutes that? Oh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I'm looking at our patients. I review every single, uh, all our data every single day across our hospitals. And we're discharging a fair number of patients. I mean, we should probably, we should probably say that, you know, 80% of people, you know, they're getting better from this. And looking at our statistics, you know, our mortality now, if it just in our experience, if you come in the hospital, our mortality is 13% or 12% in that area. And so the answer is we're sending people home, we're extubating and getting them off the ventilator, but they do face a long, a long trial afterwards where their lung function 
is going to be, you know, 20, 30, 40% down. Um, they're going to have muscle weakness because they've been laying in an ICU. Uh, they've been on medications to sedate them and to relax their muscles so they could be on a ventilator. That causes a myopathy and your muscles atrophy. Um, and so, yeah, and not to mention the cognitive issues and psychological trauma, um, it's, it's a long road back. So if you've been seriously ill with this, this is not just you go home and you're better. You know, you're going to get, you're, you're going to be sick and, and need uh, a long time to improve. So what is the timeline if someone was to start to become symptomatic from that point until they actually start to feel rather, I don't know how long it takes to get to normal, but close to normal, at least that they can function. Is that a two or three or four week process? Well, if you're seriously ill and you're intubated on a ventilator, most of the patients on a ventilator, they're not on for a day or two. Although early on, we were, we were kind of the, the dogma was to intubate people right away. So you came in, they weren't that short of breath, their sats were low, they seemed comfortable, but nope, they had COVID to protect everyone and to, to protect the patient, boom, we intubate. Well, what we've learned a couple of weeks in is that we should wait on some of those patients, put them on oxygen, put them uh, on high-flow oxygen, and we're able to keep them off the ventilator, which is so important. If you look at the data in New York, if you went on a ventilator in New York City, you had an 88% chance of dying. And so we've been teaching our doctors to try to avoid the ventilator, uh, which makes sense. But to get back to your bigger question, if you've been sick like that on a ventilator, I mean, you are talking about by the time you go home, because uh, you've probably been on a ventilator for three weeks, uh, I mean, you're looking at a three-month course to, before you back to normal. Wow. We're going to be out of time here. I wanted to ask you about your book. I mentioned it in the beginning of our discussion, your healthcare playbook, Winning the Modern Game of Medicine. What's it about? Well, it's a book that I worked on with the NFL, and I use football to explain healthcare. Uh, that's the playbook analogy. Uh, it's very applicable now because, uh, you know, it, it tells you how to be safe in the hospital. Um, I talked about in the book about old Lester Hayes, who used to play for the Oakland Raiders, and he put so much stickum uh, on his hand, stickum to help him catch, you know, in making interceptions, and he put it all over his uniform <laughs> that they actually banned it in the NFL. And I talk about that uh, as, as bugs, viruses, they're sticky on your hands, and you got to wash your hands. So uh, I did talk about that in the book, um, but it's a great read, and it's a good way to understand healthcare. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us tonight. This has been one of the most informative and grounded conversations we've had so far about this threat that we've all been facing for the last few months. I appreciate your time and all your work, everything you're doing, and uh, I do hope you'll agree to come back at some point. I'd love to. Happy to. Anytime. Right. Thanks very Oh, by the way, did you have a website? Because we had a web address that I couldn't seem to access. It's DennisDurrell.MD.com. Oh, .md.com. Okay, that's probably yeah. why we weren't getting to it. All right, again, thank you yeah. so much. Great to talk to you, doctor. Sure, take care. Bye. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.